from PRX. Studio 360. Tall dry cappuccino at the bar? Thank you. So I'm sitting in a Starbucks sipping my usual triple grande latte, thinking about how weird it is that it's named after the first mate in Melville's Moby Dick. Starbucks, I mean, not the Grande Latte. And then I think, what an enduring brand. Here I am, 150 years after it was written, still thinking of Herman Melville's big, rolling, difficult novel. You ought to look for the white wave. Come on, man. And I start remembering scenes from when I first read Moby Dick 30 years ago. The harpoon chase at night. The sailor who falls into a dead whale's head at sea. Plummeting toward the bottom until at the last second, Queequeg, the tattooed South Sea Islander, dives in to haul his fellow crewmen out. I remember Captain Ahab swearing vengeance at God and Moby Dick with St. Elmo's fire flickering white flames on the yard arms of his ship, the Pequod. It lights away to the white whale! And I remember all those digressive chapters that really had nothing to do with the plot at all. Regarding the sperm whale's head as a solid oblong, you may, on an inclined plane, sideways divide... The ones that filled about half the book where Melville meditates at length on the shape of a whale's forehead and on the whiteness of the whale. Its broad forward end forming the expanded vertical apparent forehead of the whale. So what makes a philosophical, comic, tragic adventure tale still matter so much after 150 years? I decided to find out. Moby Dick begins with one of the most famous first lines in literature. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, Whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. That's the actor Edward Herman, who is our reader for Moby Dick today. Ishmael seizes the stage with his first three words and then seduces us with what follows. But Laurie Anderson says the opening sentence is one of the most deceptive in the book. Call me Ishmael, you're going, uh, well, that only works for about three pages and then he starts talking about other stuff. So this guy, Ishmael, is deciding to ship out and... He's telling you why in the first few pages of the book. You know, I could go as an officer if I wanted to. I could go as a harpooner. Or, you know, I could go as a cook. But, um, and, you know, there's nothing like a really good broiled chicken. And, you know, the Egyptians loved broiled chicken, too, as you could tell from the the mummies of roasted river, river horse and ibis that you find in their giant bakehouses, the pyramids. And you're going, 
wait, what kind of book is this? And he, he's, he is the master of the jump cut, you know, which I just love. He's, you can, and the cool thing about this book is, you know, you can, it's tiny little chapters, um, and each, and because they're, he's interested in so many different things, polar bears and, you know, theories about the beginnings of the world and, um, you know, how deep is the ocean kind of thing. And, and you just, you're, you just drift around in this book and you can read it in little chunks because there is no plot. I mean, you know the plot, the, the ship's going to go down, that's it. How to find you, maybe by your singing, was so taken with Moby Dick that she spent the 1990s writing an opera she called Songs and Stories from Moby Dick. We'll hear more from it later in the show. Juilliard is a university in New York City for actors, musicians, and dancers. The writer Stanley Crouch taught a seminar there on jazz and American culture, and in that course, he included a section on Moby Dick, even though the novel was written half a century before jazz was born. One night before Professor Crouch arrived for a 7.30 class, his students had a chance to vent a little bit about the book. I have a, a 60-page thesis due in, like, Pretty less good. than two weeks, and there's no way I'm reading movie dick in two weeks. So. <laughs> it's basically, like, about nothing. At that point, Stanley Crouch gave the students the hairy eyeball and walked up to a corner of the room, opened up the wall cabinet to get to the stereo, and pressed play. So now the reason I wanted to play you that was because it seems to me that that in this piece of James P. Johnson's, who's often considered the father of stride piano, um, is that it has to me that same kind of a feeling that we get in Moby Dick, which is that you have these motifs, but they keep changing form. Um, Moby Dick is largely an improvisation in which you observe Herman Melville following his ear through the book. That is that um, Moby Dick is probably about as close to a spontaneously written book as you're going to encounter. He gets to the end of a chapter and says, okay, what now? And say, oh, okay, I'll try that. And then he goes with it. It's like he, the, the, the thing that's so amazing about it is that 
Form-wise, the book is an extraordinary uh, exhibition of absolute fearlessness. Now, his objective is to break down the single perspective. I mean, a chapter can start off in the first person, and it's I Ishmael, I'm telling you X, Y, and Z. Then it can suddenly switch to a dramatic form that is in the style of a theater piece. And characters leave and come in on the basis of stage instructions that are written in parentheses. And to this day, that's still very unusual. In 1850, it was actually revolutionary. Long though it may be, nothing is in there uh, purely to be there. I mean, it's all connected, and it all takes you into uh, territories about uh, American life and about just the nature of life itself. All men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters around their necks. But it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. And if you be a philosopher, though seated in the whaleboat, you would not at heart feel one whit more of terror than those seated before your evening fire with a poker and not a harpoon by your side. And the other thing, why are the whales slaughtered in the first place? For what? For oil. For, for oil, for what? Use it for, uh, to burn, to um, fuel lights. And there, that'll do. So these lamps that lit these people's homes, that made it possible for them to see after sundown, were fueled by this whale oil. So then again, we have another one of those Melvillian ironies, which is that slaughter leads to light. The slaughter leads to light. Now, are there any questions? I'm Kurt Anderson in Studio 360, where today we're chasing Moby Dick, that great American icon. Now, I know that unlike Professor Crouch's students, you know the book perfectly. Okay, maybe you've forgotten just a little of what happens. Or maybe, like some of those students, you've never even read it? Well, to get us all up to speed on what happens in Moby Dick, we asked playwright David Ives to reduce its mammoth bulk to handy, short attention span size. We proudly present Moby Dude, starring Mark Price as a contemporary young reader surfing through what is arguably the greatest American novel in two minutes flat. Call me Ishmael, dude. 
Yes, Miss Budgorski, I did read Moby Dick over the summer like I was supposed to. It was bodacious. Actually, you know, it's Moby hyphen Dick. Title's got a little hyphen before the dick. What is the meaning of this dash before the dick? Whoa, another mystery in this awesome American masterpiece. A peerless allegorical saga of mortal courage, metaphysical ambiguity, and maniacal obsession. What, Miss Podgorski? You don't believe I really read Herman Melville's Moby Dick or the Whale? 562 pages, 14 ounces, published 1851, totally tanked its first weekend, re-released in the 1920s as one of the world's gnarliest works of art? You think I copped all this like off the back of the tome or by watching that crappy 1956 film starring Gregory Peck? Miss P., You've been on my tail since middle school. Do I get all testy? Do I say what is the plot in under two minutes besides a whale and a hyphen? Moby Dick, in two minutes, huh? Okay, cool. Let's rip. Fade in. Boonies of Massachusetts, 18-something. Young dude, possibly named Ishmael, like the Bible, meets cute with, ta-da, Queequeg. South Sea cannibal with a heart of gold. Aww. Maybe they're gay. <laughs> or maybe they represent some East-West pagan-Christian duality action. Anyway, two newfound bros go to Mass and hear a sermon about Jonah, biblical tie-in, then ship out on Christmas Day, could be symbolical, aboard the USS Pequod with its mysterious wacko Captain Ahab. <laughs> Who, backstory, is Goofyfoot, because the equally mysterious mamboozaloid white whale Moby, like the singer, Dick, bit his leg off. (laughs) Freudian castration action. I mean, he's big, he's got sperm, and his last name is Dick, right? Moby is also a metaphor for God, nature, truth, obsessical love, the world, the past, and white people. Check out Pip, the Negro cabin boy, who by a fluke goes wacko too. Ahab says... Bring me the head of the great white whale and you win this prize. Crew is stoked, but not first mate like the coffee Starbuck. Ahab wants the big one, Starbuck wants the whale juice. Idealism versus capitalism. Ooh. Radical! Queekag tells the carpenter to build him a coffin shaped like a canoe, foreshadowing. Then, lots of chapters everybody skips about the Scientology of whales. <sighs> Cut to... Page 523, the Pacific Ocean. Surf's up! Ahab sights a dick. He's totally amped. The boards hit the waves. The crew snakes a dick for three whole days. Bottom of the third, Ahab is ten toes on the nose. He's aggro! Moby goes aerial. Ahab's in the zone. He fires his choicest harpoon. The rope does a 360 round his neck. Ahab crushes out. Moby totals the Pequod. Everybody eats it, except our faithful narrator, Ishmael, who boogies to safety on Queequeg's coffin. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Roll final credits. The end. So, what do you say, Miss Podgorski? You want to, like, hang and catch a cup of Starbucks sometime? Tubular! Mark Price in Moby Dude, which the playwright David Ives very kindly created just for this show. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting here now with Elizabeth Schultz, who is a deeply educated Melville scholar. And that's a 
fabulous three-minute uh, summary. He really catches just about all of the points. He, he does indeed. And, and also with, obviously, uh, a sense of humor, but a fairly deep reading of the book as well. Absolutely. And let me tell you that many of the opening passages are hysterically funny. So it's uh, humor is altogether appropriate. Well, you know, that's funny. The, the, a thing people don't know about Melville is that he was, uh, at the time, well-known as a humor writer. Yeah, he was. And he knew every brand of humor that was going. He was ironical. He was satirical. He was just loaded down with puns. He could do all the voices, uh, just like the reader of the play did. Um, well, let's it, hope, it, let's it, hope that Melville great. would appreciate this, this bit of homage. Oh, I think he would. Um, when you taught English and art history at the University of Kansas uh, to those sorts of tubular guys and girls for many years. How do you find they react to this novel? I would say that Moby Dick elicits a fabulously wide, diverse, unpredictable range of responses. There are those who find that the novel is dumbing and numbing, and there are those who don't hesitate to compare Moby Dick to the Bible. It's the book that they have close by to open at any moment in any place, and that it continues to uh, inspire their lives. One white way in all these Like Hamlet, it's one of the few works of art that is truly inexhaustible. Everything that's conceivable exists in one form or another, and it's so full of incredible delight. The playwright Tony Kushner was a graduate student when he fell in love with Moby Dick, and he says the novel is the greatest single influence on his own writing. I found it set a kind of voice free in me. I... um felt completely overwhelmed by the excessiveness of it and these sentences that go on and on and on and on and on forever. And, and really, within each sentence, I mean, let alone the, each chapter or each book, but each sentence risks collapse by extending itself longer than it can possibly go. And I became interested as a playwright in, in sort of reading these passages out loud and beginning to think about dramatic language that, that did that. How wonderful is it then, except after explanation, that this great monster, to whom corporeal warmth is as indispensable as it is to man, how wonderful that he should be found at home, immersed to his lips for life in those arctic waters, where when seamen fall overboard, they are sometimes found months afterwards perpendicularly frozen into the hearts of fields of ice, as a fly is found glued in amber. But more surprising is it to know, as has been proved by experiment, that the blood of a polar whale is warmer than that of a Borneo Negro in summer. It does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of a strong individual vitality and the rare virtue of thick walls and the rare virtue of interior spaciousness. O oh, man! Admire and model thyself after the whale. Do thou too remain warm among ice. Do thou too live in this world without being of it. Be cool at the equator. Keep thy blood fluid at the pole. 
like the great dome of St. Peter's and like the great whale. Retain, O man, in all seasons a temperature of thine own. I love that it, it shatters the form of the novel. It seems to offer a license for complete indulgence, but um, now that I've read a lot of Melville, I know it's something that he repeats over and over again, that it's better to make a terrible mistake, it's better to make an utter fool of yourself and to risk catastrophe than to be safe as an artist. The playwright Tony Kushner. I'm Kurt Anderson in Studio 360, and just ahead, the artist Frank Stella talks about his 12-year-long Moby Dick obsession. He created a work of art for every chapter in the book, all 135 of them. My son Michael said, no, you just have to do a few. And then I got so mad at him for saying, you know, you don't really have to do them all. <laughs> that then I said, oh, well, I'm going to do them all. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI in association with Slate. I'm Kurt Anderson in Studio 360, where we're chasing the white whale today, along with Ishmael and Queequeg and Starbuck and Captain Ahab. We see him only in parts, a flash of a tail, his beating heart, he's in pieces and parts. The composer and performer Laurie Anderson was inspired by the novel to write a strange, cool, modern opera. Her songs and stories for Moby Dick premiered in 1999, and here's a taste of it. And I'm thinking about two well-known epic American stories that are about work and control. And they're both stories about teams of people working in ships. And the stories are Star Trek and Moby Dick, and their ships, the Enterprise, and the Pequod. And these stories are separated by almost 150 years. And although they have a lot in common, very long voyage, powerful captain, dangerous encounters, and wild adventures, they couldn't be more different. In the Star Trek series, the ship is pretty high-tech, and the immaculate workers are endlessly typing commands into their computers and talking into their headsets, presumably affecting the course of the ship somehow. But the person who's really in charge is up on the bridge. And the plot of each episode is the same. Everybody's working away, and suddenly, for some reason or other, the ship goes out of control, and the captain starts yelling from the bridge. I've lost control. I've lost control of the ship. Now, losing control is the worst thing that could happen. And the whole plot of the story is how the captain regains control of the ship. And it's no coincidence that the whole drama happens in the control room. Now in Moby Dick, the ship is also pretty high-tech. It's a kind of floating factory, at least by 19th century standards it is. And there's the hard-working crew and the captain. Except in this ship, the captain is completely crazy. But what finally happens in Moby Dick is pretty horrendous. The captain goes more or less insane. The ship is snapped in half. The crew drowns. And the captain is dragged to the bottom of the ocean by the whale he's been fanatically hunting. The end. 
And there aren't any, even any little epigrams. Like in King Lear, when at the end the king learns that he can love some people just a little bit. In Moby Dick, it all just ends. And it's such an incredibly dark story. I mean, you can't imagine telling a story like that now. For example, the Enterprise explodes in a huge accident, and all the debris from the wreck gets sucked into a black hole, and in the last shot, there's a single spaceman turning around, swinging around and around, alone in space. Call me Ishmael. The End. Now, this would never happen, even if it was the very last episode, and the series was slated to go permanently off the air. But what I'm trying to say is that here we are in the late 20th century, and we're designing our own personal control rooms, and the stories we tell ourselves are about how to get more and more perfect more and more in control. We've been listening to Lori Anderson from her project Songs and Stories from Moby Dick. And in fact, Melville's Moby Dick does appear in a number of Star Trek movies. In First Contact, the Borg, the enemy cyborg race, have hurt the Starship Enterprise's Captain Picard. And Picard considers risking the welfare of his whole crew to get back at the Borg. But a woman from Earth's past confronts him. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your little quest. Captain Ahab has to go hunt his whale. What? You do have books in the 24th century. This is not about revenge. Liar! This is about saving the future of humanity! Jean-Luc, blow up the damn ship! No! Captain Picard smashes all the model ships around it. See you around, Ahab. And he piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the rage and hate felt by his whole race. If his chest had been a cannon, he would have shot his heart upon it. What? Bobby Dick. Actually, I never read it. Back in the day, the band Led Zeppelin also riffed on the Great White Whale in this song called Moby Dick. But painters, when they try to depict the white whale, are really defying Melville's own words. Any way you may look at it, you must needs conclude that the great Leviathan is that one creature in the world which must remain unpainted to the last. True, one portrait may hit the mark much nearer than another, but none can hit it with any very considerable degree of exactness. So there is no earthly way of finding out precisely what the whale really looks like. The great illustrator Rockwell Kent tried it anyway in the Depression year of 1930 with his melancholy black-and-white line engravings of toothy whales and Nantucket swabbies and a terrifying Captain Ahab. 
If you prefer your art more abstract and ambitious, there's also something for you. The sculptor and painter Frank Stella has been a star since the 1960s, first for his black paintings and then his geometric abstractions with bright colors. Then he visited Rome and saw Caravaggio's, pictures of saints and martyrs and their sacrifices and ecstasies. And he came to feel in the 1980s that modern abstract artists, like himself, needed to try to match the power of the great narrative paintings of the old masters. Frank Stella was looking for a story. And he found it by accident, spending some time with his kids. When I was in my you know, second marriage, I had two boys. And uh, you know, we spent a lot of time, for one reason or another, going to the aquarium in Brooklyn. And uh, in order to get in, you have to go walk by those uh, beluga whales in the tank. And they started to prey on my mind. And then I thought I might really just use the titles from Moby Dick. I was discussing it with my son Michael, and I said, well, you know, I like Moby Dick, and it's kind of interesting, and I'm working on these pieces, but, you know, I can't come up with 135 images. And my son Michael said, no, you just have to do a few. And then I got so mad at him for saying, you know, you don't really have to do them all. (laughs) You just do whatever. That then I said, oh, I'm going to do them all. Obsession, anyone? For the next 12 years, from 1985 to 1997, Frank Stella produced 266 Moby Dick artworks. When he started the series, he was basically a painter and printmaker. But the Moby Dick works grew into huge painted and unpainted metal reliefs and sculptures and collages and prints and a block-long mural and a model for a building that is yet to be built. I was taken with the book as a whole. Uh, I'm not trying to illustrate it or copy it or anything. I'm trying to uh, create a, uh, an action at the level that the action takes place in the book. His Moby Dick sculptures are installed all over the world now, but one of them is still mounted on the wall of his studio in Lower Manhattan. It's just over eight feet tall and nearly that wide. Like a lot of his work, it blurs the boundaries between painting and sculpture, A tall, ridged chunk of metal draws the eye, and the waves in the metal are highlighted by stripes of fluorescent pink and orange and magenta. And overlaying all of that in the center is a separate, sharp, right-angled piece. It's called the quadrant. Quadrant's an an instrument that you use to locate yourself in in space or on the sea or whatever. And that was in response to the... uh, the sun on the Sea of Japan, which was the unblinking sun and the brightness of it. So the thing that's in the background is the wave or the whale and everything. This is about, you know, what's out there and what's the, and what, how beautiful it is on the sea and everything and the vividness of the uh, experience. Now in that Japanese sea, the days in summer are as freshets of effulgences. That unblinking, vivid Japanese sun seems the blazing focus of the glassy ocean's immeasurable burning glass. The sky looks lacquered. Clouds there are none. The horizon floats. And this nakedness of unrelieved radiance is as the insufferable splendors of God's throne. Well that Ahab's quadrant was furnished with colored glasses through which to take sight of that solar fire. 
mainly it's about the momentum, which is, I suppose, something like the voyage. You know, I mean, you know, Ahab was going to go around and get going. He was going to make the trip one way or the other. And did you feel at the end that unlike Ahab, you had succeeded at doing what you intended? I succeeded about as much as Ahab did. I destroyed myself. (laughs) But so when you jokingly say destroyed me, how is that true, if that's half true? Well, I think that it it, it took a kind of energy out of me, and uh, it was against everything that I'd ever thought about what painting should be, and I proved to myself it could be another way. The movement and and the wave shape, the, the, the curve is just different. Although most of the things have a kind of rigid structure, I mean a pretty rigid personality, they still manage to move and uh, loosen up a little bit. Now I never know if this change of pace is a lack of progression or whether it's really a progression from what I should have been doing. So I don't know if I'm doing the right thing or not. As you look back on it as a finished series, do you, do you gainsay yourself, second guess yourself, anything you did? Mainly just, uh, you know, I still feel bad a little bit about you know, trading on Melville. I didn't mean to do that, but the the titles are, they're such good titles, if nothing else. I mean, I don't know. that The group as a whole, I, you know, I, that's it. I think it stands on its own. Actually, I feel fairly free from it. And I don't think I can, that I did or could do anything that, I don't know, that intense again. I urge you to find one of Stella's Moby Dick works in a museum or installed in an office building somewhere and experience the complicated power in person. As we were leaving Frank Stella's studio in Lower Manhattan, out on the street on 4th Avenue, I realized we were just a two-minute walk around the corner from where Herman Melville lived when he started dreaming up Moby Dick. In a minute, the great fantasy and science fiction master Ray Bradbury will tell us how he channeled Herman Melville to adapt his huge novel for the screen. So for one day, I was Herman Melville. It was in my bloodstream and it came out my fingertips. That's next in American Icon's Moby Dick from PRI in association with Slate. Studio 360. Imagine trying to adapt Moby Dick for the movies. Just turning its adventure story into a decent screenplay would be hard enough, let alone all the philosophical asides and social commentary and digressions on the zoology of whales. But in the early 1950s, Ray Bradbury, who at the time was a young writer, not yet the world-famous master of fantasy and science fiction, was asked to adapt Moby Dick for the movies. This is what you shipped for, man. To chase that white whale on both sides of land and over all sides of Earth till he spouts black blood and rolls dead out. What say you? I called Ray Bradbury at his home in Los Angeles, and I asked him what he thought of Moby Dick before the director, John Huston, got in touch with him. When he said, 
will you come and write the screenplay for Moby Dick? I said, hell, I've never read the damn thing. <laughs> he said, I tell you what, kid, you go home tonight and uh, read as much as you can and come back tomorrow and tell me if you'll help me kill the white whale. So I went home that night and I said to my wife, pray for me. She said, why? I said, because I've got to read a book tonight and do a book report tomorrow. So I could only read about 150 pages, but then I scanned through the rest and I saw that the metaphors enticed me, that I was a metaphorician myself and didn't know it. So you were obviously out to sort of capture the nuance and the metaphor that Melville was trying for in the middle of the 19th century. Well, what you try to do when you adapt anything is get it into your bloodstream, get it into your subconscious. You can't intellectualize about it. That won't work. But if you read a book 80 or 90 times, which I did, in some sections 120 times, and you put that all into your bloodstream, and then you ignore it and let it come to the surface emotionally, passionately, so you become the chaser and the chased. Oh, did you see him, man? Did you see his hump like a great snow hill? Did you see the way he slides along? Oh, there's majesty for you. Don't look. I'll look for you. You have to be as impassioned writing the screenplay as Ahab was chasing the whale. Well, and you've written about that, I guess, jokingly, but not, but also seriously, that that this screenplay, trying to crack the code of this screenplay from of Moby Dick, was effectively your own white whale. Oh, in many ways, yes, of course. And finally, after eight months of reading and rereading. I looked in the mirror and I cried. I pointed at myself and I said, I am Herman Melville. And I rushed to the typewriter and for eight hours I typed passionately and wildly and hotly. And at the end of eight hours I had 35 pages of the ending of the screenplay. And I ran across London and I threw the screenplay pages in John Houston's lap. He read the 35 pages. He my God. You've done it. Let's start the cameras. He said, what happened? I said, behold, Herman Melville stands before you. And I said, but, but look quickly, because he'll be gone in five minutes. So for one day, I was Herman Melville. It was, it was in my bloodstream, and it came out my fingertips. That's how it happens in the movies. I didn't know it happened in real life ever that way. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, it's the only way. What was the hardest thing for you to capture from the novel that you wanted to have in the film? Just uh, uh, putting all the metaphors together so they encircled each other, so they interlocked with each other and connected. The first thing I did when I got to Paris and I had my first meeting with John Houston, and we were walking along the Champs-Élysées, and I turned to him and I said, Mr. Houston, can we do one thing before I start work on the screenplay? He said, what? I said, at the end of the book, it's Fidala, who's pulled overboard by Moby Dick. Well, come on. <laughs> it should be Ahab. So when you see the screenplay, that's my addition. That's not Belleville. I eliminated Fidala and allowed Moby Dick to come in direct contact with Ahab. He rises! <laughs> 
It's Ahab who's pulled overboard, bound to the side of the whale by hempen ropes, and he's dead. He goes down into the water and up, and when he comes up, the roll of the tides causing the whale to turn from side to side makes Ahab's dead arm gesture so it looks like he's beckoning the men on to follow. You see, you see. And the men see that Ahab beckons. He's dead, but he beckons. And pursue the white whale to their doom. Well, that's not in the book, but I put it in the screenplay. I'm very proud of that. I'd like to think that Melville, if he saw the film, would approve of Ahab being on the side of the whale and gesturing to the men. Ray Bradbury, thank you so much for joining me in Studio 360 today to talk about Moby Dick. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye now. We're going to end today's exploration with Elizabeth Schultz, who we talked to at the beginning of the program. She's devoted a long career to introducing new generations to the book at the University of Kansas. Beth Schultz is absolutely passionate about Moby Dick. She even admits to being obsessed with it. I asked her to tell me her favorite scene in the book. Ah, Kurt, (laughs) how many there are. (laughs) Well, depending on the day, depending on the weather, I can uh, think of uh, a passage that would be right. But yes, there are a good number of passages. Tell me uh, me one, given today's weather. Well, let me um, uh, refer to a passage in the Grand Armada chapter. This is a chapter in which uh, the Pequod enters into a, um, a part of the world, a part of the ocean, where there are circles upon circles of whales. And it is at this moment when uh, we see the whaling endeavor at its most horrific, at its greediest, at its most exploitive, because the whaleboats go out one after another, and they shoot countless uh, harpoons into the bodies of whales. It is a terrible, bloody scene. In about three minutes' time, Queequeg's harpoon was flung. The stricken fish darted blinding spray in our faces, and then running away with us like light, steered straight for the heart of the herd. Though such a movement on the part of the whales struck under such circumstances is in no wise unprecedented, and indeed is almost always more or less anticipated, Yet does it present one of the more perilous vicissitudes of the fishery. For as the swift monster drags you deeper and deeper into the frantic shoal, you bid adieu to circumspect life and only exist in a delirious throb. And it is in the midst of this uh, mayhem, this bloody operation, that they enter into a circle of whales They go through what is called a living wall, that's Melville's phrase, a living wall of whales. And in the middle of this pod, they look down into the water is very clear. And there they see whales um, 
uh, making love. They see mother whales with their with their babes. Uh, they see a whale, a baby whale that has just been born and is still in the shape of uh, a turned fetal shape as if it has just come from its, its mother's womb. But far beneath this wondrous world upon the surface, another and still stranger world met our eyes as we gazed over the side. For suspended in those watery vaults floated the forms of the nursing mothers of the whales, and those that by their enormous girth seemed shortly to become mothers. The lake, as I have hinted, was to a considerable depth exceedingly transparent, and, as human infants, while suckling, will calmly and fixedly gaze away from the breast, as if leading two different lives at the time, and while yet drawing mortal nourishment, be still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence, even so did the young of these whales seem looking up towards us, but not at us, as if we were but a bit of gulfweed in their newborn sight. It is a moment when Ishmael believes that it is possible to recognize the chaos and the cruelty of the world on the one hand, and yet still believe in domesticity, in um, a mysterious and wondrous and incomprehensible continuity to life itself. And thus, though surrounded by circle upon circle of consternations and affrights, did these inscrutable creatures at the center freely and fearlessly indulge in all peaceful concernments, yea, serenely reveled in dalliance and delight. But even so, amid the tornadoed Atlantic of my being, do I myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm, and while ponderous planets of unwaning woe revolve round me, deep down and deep inland, there I still bathe me in eternal mildness of joy. The adventure, the mystery, the terror, the philosophy, the ugliness, and all that beauty all of this is what's made Moby Dick singular and made it last. But don't take my word for it. Go read the book. I'm Kurt Anderson in Studio 360, and I thank you for coming along on this journey. Since we first aired this hour, which won the Peabody Award, Ray Bradbury and Edward Herman, who was our narrator, have died. This edition of Studio 360's American Icons was produced by Julie Burstein, Peter Clowney, and Latal Molad, with Ave Carrillo, Carrie Hillman, David Krasnow, Edward Lifson, Sarah Lilly, Jonathan Mitchell, and Michelle Siegel. Thanks to KCRW's Morning Becomes Eclectic for the recording of Lori Anderson. We would love to hear your thoughts about Moby Dick and the hour you just heard. Tell us at Studio360.org. 
And while you're there at our website, you can listen to all of Studio 360's American Icon series, like Andy Warhol's Soup Cans. The can was, for Andy, rough trade, you know, like a sailor. And Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. Kind of Blue was a record that if you had it on you, it showed that you had intelligence, that you had taste, that you were hip. You can find out why Frank Lloyd Wright had such a chip on his shoulder. Frank Lloyd Wright was known to wander around his studio with a fly swatter, and before killing flies, he would name them. Gropius, Courbusier, Mies, whack, whack, whack. And why chaste Emily Dickinson brings out the beast in Billy Collins. Is she naked at the end of this poem? She's naked in the second stanza. You dog, you. Grr. <laughs> Rough. It's all at Studio360.org. Studio 360 is produced by PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, I ask Carrie Brownstein about her low point fronting the band Slater Kinney. You punched yourself in the face. Yeah. You can really sock yourself? Yeah, but please don't try it. It's a whole hour about music and how music stirs us. Next time in Studio 360. So you want to be